Well, following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly is our simple way to live life. And on this podcast, we try to make leading simple. And today, uh, we have a guest with us who I was introduced to recently from a mutual friend, Kerry Newhoff, on his podcast. He's a pastor by the name of Steve Cuss. And I I love, first of all, Steve, that you have just owned your last name. Would you tell everybody (laughs) the name of your website, which I think is great? Uh, My website is just stevecusswords.com. I just think that's fantastic. And I, I think people just, first of all, they figured out you've got an accent. So you're from down under. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, first of all, and then we'll talk about Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was born and raised in Perth, Western Australia, and um, I was raised completely outside the church, but started attending a church. Actually, you may know David Timms. His youngest sister invited my sister to youth group. And uh, my big sister came to faith, and then she led me to faith when I was 14. Um, And then, uh, yeah, I felt a call to the ministry when I was 17. I was actually in university uh, studying my lifelong dream to be a vet. And uh, boy, six weeks into vet school, I just was miserable and disillusioned and uh, did a whole lot of praying. I'd only been a believer a few years by then and really felt a call to ministry. So yeah. came to the States for, for school, and there's a long, messy story there, but here I am. Okay, so I'm picturing being a vet in Australia is just dealing with a lot of kangaroos and koala bears. Just, is that right? delivering kangaroos left and right. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> that's probably the, the dream right there, yeah. Mas, nothing but marsupials. Oh, that's great. Okay, so a lot of us have never been to Australia. Um, tell us one thing about Australians that we all assume is true, uh, but it's not. And maybe one thing that would be surprising to us. Something you assume that's true that's not. Uh, so I think the thing that's not true, like there are a phenomenal ways to die in Australia by various wildlife, but we <laughs> just don't think about it much. So I had two of the 10 most deadly snakes in my neighborhood, um, but it just doesn't cross your mind on a regular basis that you could die by them. Or if you're swimming in the ocean, there's all kinds of ways you can get killed by a predator in the ocean. And we're just, it's just off our radar. I'd say that's probably what would surprise most Americans. When I talk to Americans about going to Australia, that's almost their top concern, the spiders, jellyfish, the sharks, the snakes. And it's all true. They're all there, but um, I don't know. It's, I don't know. Like, are there mountain lions where you live, Rusty? Um, there are, but, uh, we don't see them very often. Yeah. That's probably the same. We just have dozens of ways to die, but we, we rarely interact with them. Uh, explain to us what Vegemite sandwich is. Oh my goodness. V- Vegemite is the, the <laughs> Aussie version of peanut butter in that it's ubiquitous. We all eat it. Um, but, but, um, but it tastes nothing like it. So Vegemite is like, it tastes like an extremely strong cheese, but it looks like axle grease. That's probably the okay. best way I could describe <laughs> it. You know, Tom Tom Hanks was stuck in Australia with coronavirus, and he actually uh, set the country on fire by by posting an Instagram about his Vegemite toast that he tried. And he smothered this thing in Vegemite like you would peanut butter. And uh-huh. Aussies everywhere just hit the roof because you, you use it very sparingly. You, a guy could die putting too much Vegemite on his toast. <laughs> well, I think most of us, uh, the only thing we know about Australia is from Crocodile Dundee or, you know, the Land Down Under song from Men at Work. Yeah. And, uh, 
That's where I get some of my knowledge, definitely. So you're in the States now. You're pastoring a church in, is it Broomfield? Yeah. Colorado? Just, yep. Just under Boulder, Colorado area. Okay. Well, I think the reason that I wanted you to come on the podcast is basically because of this book that you wrote. And then I heard you interviewed um, on Carrie's podcast, and I just was so taken by the things you had to say. But you wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. Yours and theirs is kind of the subtitle to it. Where'd this idea come from? Yeah, the the idea came, it 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 um, hit me unexpected when I was in my early 20s. I had just graduated with uh, a Bible degree and a preaching degree from Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. Great school. And I feel like I got a fantastic education. But uh, having graduated and, and gotten married, my first job was as a uh, trauma chaplain in a hospital. And I did um, hospital rounds, and then I also did in-home hospice care. So they'd send the chaplains into people's houses to help them die. And I, I, you know, I was 24, I was very young, um, actually technically too young for the program. They, they made an exception to bring me on. And I think it was in those encounters, just, just walking into rooms multiple times a day where people are absolutely desperate, um, where I'm watching death happen in real time. And I, I think that's the first time I really noticed that um, I have this inner life that's always bubbling under the surface that I wasn't aware of before. I, I think most of us, once we get a bit of age under our belt, we become very aware that we have this inner life. But I was 24. I don't know. You've probably met these people, Rusty, but I was one of those you know, young, white, male with a theological degree, uh, sometimes we're the most dangerous humans in the world. We just think we know everything, right? Mm -hmm. So here I am with my theological degree and my, my young white male self, um, in a room with people in really the most profound pain they've ever been in, and I just had nothing for them. I, everything I'd been trained in, I, I was kind of bankrupt. So I had to dig deeper because I really wanted to be helpful. And as I was digging deeper, I discovered this inner world in myself that um, I did not know until then that how frequently it takes over Mm. And it gets in the way of my ability to be present with people. And then I later found out my ability to be present with God. So the book is an attempt to help us. For younger leaders, it's to help you notice it. And then for, I think, more seasoned leaders, it's to put names to what we already notice about ourselves and then to give us some tools on how to uh, flip the power dynamics so that we can manage it and be fully present to people. And then the last half of the book is helping leaders with teams. Uh, if, you know, if you and I have this kind of bubbling collective under the surface, then everyone on our team does too. And mm. so I, I train leaders on how to notice the spread of anxiety in a group, for example, and how to step into an anxious group um, with a calm way if, if you have to lead change. So that, that's kind of the book in a nutshell. Well, one of the things I was so taken by in the book and also your interview was you came to this realization and I thought this was so brave of you to even say this, because I think we all think this, but we just don't, you know, ha have the ability to, to voice it. But you came to this realization that your shadow mission or your main objective when you walk in a room is to make everybody in there like you. Yes. And I, I think that's where it really screws up leaders so much, because we assume 
if you like me, then you'll follow me. And so I've got to make sure that we're, you know, we connect or you like me or I acquiesce to every demand that you have so that. And so we kind of think that the ends justify the means. I know there's a lot of church planners that listen to this and they're, they're probably nodding their head thinking, yeah, because if I don't make them like me, then they won't come to the church and we won't actually get this thing off the ground and this thing will fail. Uh, how did you come to that realization and how did you deal with it? Yeah, uh, I think I, I think we all have different drives that drive us. And I have, I, I think I have somewhere between 15 and 30 of them. So this is just one of them. And then it gets really weird. It, once you start to figure out th- that that you keep running into yourself, you know, if, if you have any self-awareness at all, you just start to notice that you keep getting in your own way and you just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So at some point, you just get fed up. And and I, I think in my life, at least, God has grown me through the gift of fed up, like more than almost anything else. So mm. yeah, it's one thing that, that need people to like you. And then it gets pretty crazy when you start chasing them if they don't like you. Like, mm-hmm. So you start to notice your pathological behaviors. Um, one subset of people liking me that I uncovered is my profound need for every single sermon I ever preached to be the best ever. Mm-hmm. And, and you can start fleshing out the implications of these needs and how much pressure you're putting on yourself and how much pressure you're putting on others. And then I think where it gets really uh, dangerous is when you notice how much it gets in the way of what God's actually calling you to do and, and how much of your life you're actually giving over to just feeding this idol rather than actually following God. Um so for others, you, you know, some people may not be as prone to people pleasing. I, I do think most faith leaders have a people pleasing element, but mm-hmm. I've worked with faith leaders uh, that for them it's perfectionism. They it's like they're operating out of the lie that they have to get it exactly right the first time every time. So you know, you're talking about church planters who are about to embark on seven years of first time. Everything they do is for the first time. Man, if if you're a raging perfectionist with an inner critic, you're just not going to make it because you're going to be harder on yourself than God is. You're going to be operating out of your own self rather than trusting God. So I, I think I uncovered it just by studying the patterns in my life that generated anxiety in my life and and tried to get to the bottom of it that way. Mm, that's so good. Yeah, I think about um, just that that desire to constantly make everybody happy. And, uh, you know, you could get into the Enneagram here and talk about the number ones or the number fours or uh, just how you process failure and difficulty, certainly with church planning and any kind of leadership makes it really, really difficult. One of the things you mentioned in the book is you talk about anxiety and how the gospel works. And I think for a lot of us, we, we've, um, We've gotten very comfortable talking about our anxiety. We've gotten very comfortable talking, you know, mentioning our therapists and uh, the counselors that we see, and even the medications that we take. But for a lot of us, we kind of hold our anxiety in one hand and our relationship with Jesus in another, or the gospel in another, and we're not really sure how it's going to help. Yeah. We know it might it might calm us down if we pray. We know that when we go to heaven, that we won't have to deal with it. But for a lot of us, we've just kind of thought, well, this is my thorn in the side and I got to live with it uh, for the rest of my life. But, but you talk about 
how the gospel works and more specifically about the false self and where our anxiety comes from and how the gospel can kind of enter into that. Would you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a big concept. Uh, so, so jump in if I'm getting a little in the weeds. But uh, mm-hmm. first of all, I think it's really important to name that that anxiety is a broad word that we use broadly in our culture. But clinically, there's five forms of anxiety. And I'm actually speaking on one of those forms, which is known in clinically as chronic anxiety. So I want to be really aware that some of your listeners, for example, might uh, battle PTSD or generalized anxiety disorder. Um, those are actually unique clinical conditions that I, I think I can be helpful with, but require much more help than I can give. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I wrote about leadership anxiety is because that's just my word for what's clinically called chronic anxiety. So mm. let, let's just take PTSD. PTSD is is actual physiological traumatic symptoms from an actual traumatic event. Um, mm-hmm. Chronic anxiety is all based on false belief. That's why you and I are just kicking around, you know, people pleasing or needing to be perfect. It's actually not true. Um, I'm actually fully able to be a thriving human being right in the middle of someone not liking me and be fine. But what I believe is true, which is a lie, is I have to win the approval of everybody. And when I don't get what I think I need, then the the uh, symptom of that is chronic anxiety. This this thing shows up in my life. I start to worry or I start to try to chase people or charm them or make them laugh, something like that. So yeah, if we understand GAD and PTSD and grief and some of these other forms of anxiety are, are a real thing, and we just look at chronic anxiety, then it it is generated... I believe theologically by the false self. I believe that in any given moment in our life, uh, there's always two competing forces for our attention. And one is God. And the way we know we have God's attention or we're attentive to God is we literally rest. We, We literally relax. And then the other competitor, I think, is the false self. And the way we know we're in the grip of the false self is when we're chronically anxious. Um, so let me pause and we can go any way you want, but that would be the, the, the big idea around it. Well, and that's that's great. And I, I mean, we really could talk about this for a couple of hours, um, but our podcast normally doesn't go that long. But one, and I, I really want people to get the book. It's, man, it's such a great read. And it's it's not... It's not overly technical. You don't get deep in the weeds of medical terms we won't understand, but it's so applicable whether you're a church leader or a leader of any type or somebody just dealing with any kind of this chronic anxiety in which you talk about. And I love the way you categorize that. But what I want to do, though, is just I want to give you some space to dive in to uh, a particular chapter that you have called Sources of Relational Anxiety. And you mentioned <laughs> yeah. it briefly on Carrie's podcast. And I think, and you're laughing because you know where I'm going with this. I think this is where it, it, it really impacts us all, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a junior high small group leader, uh, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad. We're all stay-at-home right now to some degree. But these particular things you walk through, boy, I never put words to these. But they all create some form of relational anxiety. And I just think about so many Christmas 
events, so many Thanksgiving dinners, so many weekends away with family. I think, boy, that was at play. Yeah. I'm going to throw out, well, first of all, before I even throw out what these are, you want to just set it up a little bit and then I'm going to give you some of these that you talk about and let you define them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So really all my, when I work with any kind of leader and actually I also do this work with parents because parents are leaders. Um, all I'm trying to do is is help you name and diagnose sources of anxiety, and that's 50% of the battle. If you can know what's generating anxiety, you have an almost certain chance of, of um, flipping the power dynamic. And so what we were just talking about before is all this like internal anxiety, things that we believe, false belief, all of that. But there's a whole other category of anxiety that's just purely environmental. It's not because you have daddy issues or things you don't believe. It's just that, hey, if you're in this situation, this situation will make you anxious. And what's fun is since I've written the book, I've gone on a bit of a bender of studying these sources of anxiety. I'm now up to 27 of them. Um, And I I train leaders on how to notice when you're in one of these situations. Obviously, we'll just cover a handful now, but that's the big idea is just helping you learn to notice when you're in a situation that itself is going to generate anxiety. And then once you know that, you know, give you the tool to, to move through it. Okay. So I'm going to throw some of these out there. Here's the first one. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So cognitive dissonance is anytime you and another person have the same set of facts, but you see them radically opposite. Mm. And, and you're convinced that you see them accurately and the other person's convinced that they see them accurately and and that will generate anxiety because you will try to worry your way around to their way of seeing things. And so it's very hard to have a meeting with somebody. Let, let's take maybe somebody who's like narcissistic. They just have no self-awareness. I've worked with people like this where they blow things up and then they act like the victim or even sometimes they're even like they're bullying but they're acting like the victim. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll sit them down and say, look, we don't behave that way here. You can't treat people like this. And they'll say, what? I didn't. And, and it's like, we were both in the same room at the same meeting, but we have radically different interpretations of your behavior. I tend to then get pretty spun up because I'm trying to figure out what they're thinking. Uh, and usually the reason cognitive dissonance gets us in an anxiety grip is we keep trying to rationally work our way around it, but a, a rational solution won't help. You have to engage some uh, tools from a theory called family systems theory to really break cognitive dissonance. Okay. Here's another one. Mixed messages. <laughs> yeah. Mixed messages. Anytime somebody sends you two messages at the same time where the messages themselves are conflicting. And it's kind of a, it's a form of cognitive dissonance, but if, if someone's ever like sent you an email or said something to you, and you just go away anxious, you go away confused, one reason could be that they've sent you a mixed message. And mixed messages, most people who send them, um, it's just accidental. They just, uh, they don't mean to. But mixed messages are actually the intentional tool of like a psychopath to drive someone crazy. Hmm. Um, So yeah, a classic example would be someone who's passive aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. passive aggressiveness is always a mixed message. And if you, you, you can tell you, it's like, you feel like you got stabbed, but you didn't see the knife in the person's hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, obviously we're doing kind of a, a, a rapid conversation here, but 
But the quickest solution to a mixed message is to choose the message you want and ignore the one you don't want and just act on the message you prefer. And that puts the anxiety back where it belongs on, on the anxiety generator. Um, so I can go further into that, but that's, that's kind of the quick solution to the mixed message. Well, I'm just thinking about many husbands who ask their wife, can I go out with the boys on Friday night? And she says, oh, sure. You go that's right ahead. Fine. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. accepting what you want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Choose the preferred message. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. It's a good example. And then see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it'll, see how that plays out. It'll certainly coach the person to be clearer in their communication. And also true. you might spend, that could be a couch offense. You might spend a night on the couch. <laughs> okay. Here's one of my favorites, the double bind. Explain that one to us. Yeah. Double bind is both a source of relational anxiety, but it's also a source of internal anxiety. So um, someone can put you in a double bind or you can be putting yourself in double binds. So a double bind is any time you think that there are only two options and they're both doomed, mm -hmm. uh, lose, lose. Um, it's a very common dynamic. I, I used to work in Las Vegas at Central Christian Church and the, my primary job was crisis intervention, people coming off the street, wanting something from the church. And uh, some of those people who have been chronically in need for a long time, uh, how would I say this? They use manipulation as just one of their resources to get what they need. So I mm. honestly, I wouldn't, I'm not passing judgment on that. They're actually become very skilled at trying to get what they need in desperate times. But it's very, a double binds a very common tool they would use where no matter what you do, it's not good enough for them. And you find yourself working harder on their problem than they are. Uh, and you just start to, and especially if you're a caring person, if you're really wanting to help, you can find yourself in a double bind pretty quick. Um, internal double binds, one of the, easiest ways I know to help see when someone's in an internal double bind is if you're ever out to eat at a restaurant with them and they just can't decide off the menu. Um, mm. Especially if you're like at Chili's where the menu hasn't changed in 40 years. Right. But but each time they go, they're agonizing like, oh, the, the cheeseburger or the salad. And, and the way you know that you tend toward double binds is once you choose one path, you spend that time regretting the other path. Mm. Like, oh, what would have happened if I'd gotten this? So double binds will always generate anxiety in people. All right, let me give you one more. Triangulation. <laughs> yeah, triangulation is any time three people are in a relationship where there should only be two people in it. Um, <laughs> so th there are healthy triangles, like if, if it's, say, a, a mom and a dad and a kid, uh, but there's unhealthy versions of the same triangle where the dad says to the kid, don't tell mom, you know, but I'm going to let you do this, but she never would. That's triangulation. Mm -hmm. uh, gossip is always triangulation. So most pastors, for example, um, are anxious because people are triangulating against them. They won't mm -hmm. come to them. They'll just gossip about them. But triangulation can get really uh, crafty, rusty. Like, like if uh, let's just talk to pastors real quick. If someone comes to you and says, can you keep a secret? And you, you know, you really honor confidentiality, but then they say something about someone else. If, if you're not careful, you're being triangulated because then they'll go away. You know, they're in your office and they're talking badly about, say, Kathy, and you're just listening and you're not sure what to say. They'll then call Kathy and say, hey, I was talking to the pastor and we both agree that, you know, blank. 
And you've suddenly been triangulated. You didn't even know it. Next thing you know, Kathy's calling and she's hurt. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, I, I didn't say anything. I, I just mm-hmm. like listened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so triangulation can be really insidious, but it'll always generate anxiety. Yeah, we have a, a saying that I have to go over in staff meeting at least once a year, and that is, please don't ever say, Rusty said so. Yeah, that's right. That's triangulation. <laughs> they put my stamp of approval on something, and I get it. I used to do that when I was in their shoes, um, but it can certainly create a lot of anxiety for those that are that are involved. Um, Steve, this is uh, this is eye-opening for a lot of us because I think a lot of us are in relationships where it, it produces anxiety and we don't know why. And these are people we love. And on our best day, we, we have the most wonderful time with them. But then suddenly it's a passive aggressive comment. It's, um, it's a cold shoulder. It's a, uh, a triangulation or a double bind that causes you to feel like, ah, this is not comfortable. It must be me. But this is giving tremendous um, um, identification to the problem that, that we have here. Um, how can our listeners uh, get more from you? And, and uh, obviously the book, maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and what you offer on your website. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the book is available wherever you buy your books. Um, and I, I would just say it's basically a, almost like a reference guide. Um, what I highly encourage people to do is to interact with the material with a group of people they trust. So the mm-hmm. book was born out of a class I've been teaching at our church for about nine years. We put people in groups of four, and we just slowly, we let everyone try on these concepts. Uh, and so deeper in the book, you'll see I teach about genograms and verbatims and some of these deeper tools. So especially with COVID, um, you know, before COVID, I was traveling a good bit and doing in-person consulting and, and seminars. I, I've moved most of that now to to. 90 minute to two hour webinars that are interactive. I just meet with people on Zoom and then I'll mm. throw out, like if we're doing a double bind like we did, there'll then be several minutes where people can chat about it with each other. Because I've just I've learned that if you really want to grow, you can't just read about it, you have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So most of my work is interactive. So I have a podcast, uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety. People can listen in on that, but I'd encourage them to either grab a group of people they trust and try some of these things, or you could jump on one of my webinars, or if you're an organizational leader, you can get in touch with me. And my favorite work is, is working with teams, you know, spending half a day or a day and really giving you guys lots of time to talk together. So it's kind of, I call it a facilitated experience. I'll come in and teach concepts, but every 15, 20 minutes or so, you guys are talking to each other about it in, in bite-sized pieces. That's that's probably my most fun work, I think. Mm. Well, that's great. And as you mentioned earlier, the website is stevecusswords, I believe, .com. Yep. All right. Well, Steve, this has been fascinating. And again, I'm just so grateful for your book. It was such an encouragement to me and pass it out to a lot of team members. And I'm sure it will just have a, a ripple effect. And uh, just grateful for your ministry and what you're doing. Um, and thankful you uh, have shared that with all of us. So uh, for all of our listeners, pick up a copy of the book and uh, check out the podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And we'll be back next week with more content to help leaders of churches and leaders in churches. Let's just-